BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Ben, I've collected some of your favorite things to listen to in the year 2021. Playing Arctic Monkeys. I knew you liked that band. Uh, <laughs> what was that thing called again? I forgot already. The metaverse. Uh, the metaverse. The metaverse. Oh, yeah, Zuckerberg owns the metaverse. We just live in it. Hold on one second. I a guest texting me. I should concentrate on what I'm doing oh, oh, next week. Oh my God. Folks, you know, when you're um a big time host of a big time podcast and you do your own booking. Let's try it again. Three, two, one. I um Right now, um... Hey, everybody, how's it going? Uh, shout out to Jesse Sharkey. I feel you, Jesse, man. The strain and stress you've been under the last few days. I hope you get some rest. hope you take it easy. Uh, that's old, uh, Jesse Sharkey. That's from the 2019 strike. You know, oh, so he, he stumbled. He stumbled. Uh, yeah, 2019. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. I mean, I tried to interview him yesterday downtown, and this is what I got. I, so. um... <laughs> Right now, um, were you downtown at all? There was horns everywhere. Uh, no, I was not. What was I doing yesterday? I was feverishly working on a column that I had to change at the last minute because the teacher settled. We'll get into that in a little bit. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, January 11th, is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Go check it out. Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A. V as in victory, S-K-Y. I, um... Right now, um... It's Tuesday, January 11th, and this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, Loreen Targos and Alderman Byron Sigcho Lopez. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. And Jarofsky here. We're calling this Cut a Deal Tuesday, and here's why. The CTU and CPS, Chicago Teachers Union, Chicago Public Schools, cut a deal. Chicago uh, phrase, cut a deal. Let's cut a deal. Uh, and uh, the headline in the, uh, my beloved bright one, Chicago Sun-Times Home Delivery, says it all. Back to class. CPS students return to school Wednesday after two teachers union vote to resume, resume in-person work. It's Lefty Day in the Ben Jarofsky show. So we'll be talking about this with two of the most prominent leftists in the city of Chicago, Lorraine Targos and Alderman Byron Sixer Lopez of the 25th Ward. Got many, many feelings about this, folks. Um, I wrote a column about it for this week. You know, I put my feelings into a column and then they cut their deals. I had to rewrite the column. Very difficult day for me. But you know what, D, my difficulties are just so minor 
uh, in comparison and contrast to the public school teachers of Chicago. I'd like to give a shout out to the public school teachers of Chicago. They put it on the line. They lost, I forget how many days, four days of pay, standing up for the children of the city of Chicago. That's how I look at it. I think it's absolutely inexcusable that the powers that be in this city would allow school children to be so vulnerable at a time of a COVID pandemic. Yes, there is such this city is as divided economically along class and racial lines as it's ever been. It's been that way since I came to this town in 1981. Nothing ever changes in this city. You're on your own. The prevalent attitude about well-to-do people, even middle class people is they figured it out. If you got the vaccine, if you got the booster, you're okay. You're, if you get COVID and this particular strain, it's just a mild flu. It may not even be bad as a flu. You may just have like sniffles or something. I know so many people who've had COVID and they go, oh my God, it wasn't that bad. Well, not everybody is vaccinated. That's a problem. In the city of Chicago, a big time problem. And other people, you know, maybe they don't have great health care like you have. Maybe they don't have access to doctors. Maybe they can't get uh, the best treatment that you're getting. Maybe they live in smaller houses or smaller apartments where the, the illness can spread. You ever think of that, Chicago? Teachers of Chicago, I think, stood up. I really believe this. For the, they sacrificed their pay. What'd they get out of it? They, they lost four days of pay trying to get Lori Lightfoot and her aides who run the public school system, Pedro Martinez, to do what they should have done months ago, which is adequately protect the students. Dennis and I used to do our show from a lovely little studio and my beloved bright one. Love that studio. Miss that studio. Mm. And COVID scattered us to his palatial mansion in Pilsen and <laughs> just said that to see if he was paying attention to his lovely apartment in Pilsen and my lovely attic on the north side. And that's the reality. And we're very fortunate and very lucky uh, that we're not constantly exposed to a very scary and threatening illness. Even if with a vaccination and a booster shot, it's not life threatening. So I think it's really kind of selfish of so many people in the city of Chicago to only view the health considerations and concerns of everybody who lives in the city through the lens of how their life is affected. And see, it's really smart of Lori Lightfoot, I think, politically speaking. I'm not saying it's the right thing. I'm not saying it's the compassionate thing. I'm not saying it's the morally correct thing. She understands North Side residents in the city. She knows the most North Side residents don't, you know, they're not really thinking about poor people who don't have only hippies who do podcasts and addicts and old lefties think about stuff like that. So she's like, I'm not alienating any votes by being tough on the teacher. They like it when I smack around the teacher. Corporate Chicago loves it. That's how you treat teachers. I don't know anybody else who give up four days of pay D to stand up for the rights of people who are poor and outside the system. And if the teachers did, and they ultimately came back. I don't know if they have much choice. It's really hard to go without a paycheck. You know, usually when uh, teachers go on strike or they go have a work stoppage, it's because in the at the end of the day they're going to get more money, not just teachers but workers in general. In this case, they're losing money. I'm trying to think of anybody in the city of Chicago, any politician, any elected official, any civic leader 
who's ever lost money for a cause. Well, I can't think, can't think anyway. I know I haven't. Well, I may have been fired. <laughs> oh, there's that. <laughs> but that was more because of my big mouth. Yeah, and talk radio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think a big mouth would probably, you know, and talk yeah. radio, you know what I mean? Well, yeah. Well, it's Penn's D and what's coming out of that big mouth. Yeah, right? I guess so. <laughs> so anyway, um, major shout out to the teachers of Chicago. We owe you one. We owed you one in 2019. You went on strike to get more nurses. I can't think of anybody else who goes on, for, on strike, loses money. Like standing up for issues that benefit other people. I mean, I just, I can't think of it. I can't, I absolutely cannot think of anyone in any profession that has done that. And you know, when I came to town, Byron Sixer Lopez has joined us. Byron Sixer Lopez has joined us. I love when my guests show up. When I first moved to town, before I bring on uh, the Alderman of the 25th Ward, when I first moved to town, well, really it was like 10 years into it. The teachers union uh, was one of those get along, go along to get along types. You know, they cut their deals. Then there was bread and butter issues. They dealt with bread and butter issues. I, I heard that so many times. Ben, here's the problem with you lefties. <laughs> you know, you got to understand. People care about their salary. People care about their pensions. We leave that all that other stuff to you lefties out there. We're not going to strike. We're not going to the mat. For stuff like classroom size. I remember these arguments. I had these discussions. Curriculum. You know. Nurses and social workers. So ever since Karen Lewis. The union has become a more progressive force. In the city of Chicago. And I give them a lot of credit for that. They lost four days of school. Because they were standing up for the rights. Of poor kids. Who have basically no representation in this city. That's unheard of in Chicago. On the north side of Chicago where I live. People are mocking that. Oh my god. What losers. Give up four days of pay. Who does that? So I got a lot of love and respect for the Chicago teachers. And I appreciate that you guys lost those four days of pay. I understand you got banged. and <laughs> Mayor Lori Lightfoot doesn't play. She doesn't like you. She hits you hard. And, and, and she gets to, to access. I, the guy that defends the teachers is talking on a podcast out of an attic overlooking an alley. Mayor Lori Lightfoot gets to go speaking up for corporate Chicago. Oh, please come on. Meet the press. You know, oh, please come on these national TV shows where we can spread the message that you're preaching. Those teachers, those dastardly teachers. The teachers were standing up for the health concerns of kids in the city of Chicago. And somehow or other, I got to give her credit. Byron Sixer Lopez, Lori Lightfoot, she knows how to play the game. Somehow or other, when I got turned around, the teachers were somehow the selfish ones. <laughs> anyway, I had a lot of other things in my mind, but I'm going to put them aside because Laura, Laureen has joined us and Byron Sixer Lopez has joined us. It's Lefty Day and the Ben Jarofsky Show. Two of the leftiest lefties I know. And I say this as a lefty lefty, but I think, Laureen, you may be even more lefty than I am because we were having a conversation before we went to the show preparing. I'm like, God dang, this woman is to the left of me. 
I welcome you back to the show, Lorene. It's always great to see you. And Byron Sousa Lopez, great to see you guys. Are like, if you, I wish I could take a picture of this, ladies and gentlemen. They, I think you guys are sharing. <laughs> a kid. <laughs> By the way, they they're married, a married couple. Um, and Byron, you guys are sharing a camera, so you're like your heads are joined together in this image. You know what? I'm going to take a picture of this and put it on my Facebook. <laughs> Hold on, man. Keep your heads together so we get this. There we go. Well, get me in the picture too. <laughs> you've seen it all you've seen it all in the show Ben yes so Byron you heard me I was going on strong I would call it one of my famous rants uh, Lorene you heard me too as well um, so much to discuss with you both of you uh, Byron has been in the news lately his lawsuit uh, against Danny Solis we've talked about it so many times Adolfo Mondragon his lawyer El Dragon as we call him uh, we'll be going to the Supreme Court to fight that. We want to talk about that. Redistricting is out there. We want to talk about that. Uh, the remap is out there. We're going to talk about that. But I'll tell you what's burning on my mind right now, Byron uh, and Lorreen, is uh, the showdown here in Chicago between uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the Chicago Public Schools. And uh, my view on this is that it's outrageous that basic safety precautions like masks and testings, testings would hinge on a collective bargaining negotiations between the bosses who run CPS and the union. Byron Cisha Lopez, I think it's outrageous that those masks weren't in those schools uh, at the start of the school year and definitely at the start of this calendar year without teachers having to demand it. It should have been something that the city of Chicago provided because you would think that the city of Chicago, which has a health commissioner and a health department, Byron and Laureen, you think they would not need teachers essentially demanding walking out effectively before they finally agreed to put masks in the school. Am I, Byron, Sixto Lopez, and Laureen, am I being unfair to Mayor, Mayor Lori Lightfoot and her health commissioner, Allison Awadi? Tell me, am I asking too much of the city of Chicago? We'll start with you, Byron. I think you're absolutely right. And unfortunately, this is not only an issue here in Chicago, but, you know, across the country, we see the poor responses uh, to the pandemic that has devastated uh, many cities in Chicago alone. You know, over 6,300 people have died, many in poor areas, you know, black and brown communities affected the most. And you would think that, you know, by now. And and we know that we, we, we had a variant, we had a more contagious variant even before the the holidays, right? We knew that this was three times as contagious. Uh, we had plenty of time to discuss a plan. Uh, <laughs> Governor Prisker reaches out proactively to the mayor's office to offer 300,000 tests, right? Um, and what was the response of the mayor? I think the mayor not only doesn't have a plan, not only does not take the governor on basing, basic health, testing, masks, and, and, and a help that was offered to her directly, but then she goes on a rant to attack and politicize a, an issue that is a public health matter. What we're hearing from parents, right? And we got to sympathize with parents across the board. We have parents who are gotten sick or no members who gotten sick who are terrified to go to the, and the guy was with teachers as well, staff, um, they're terrified to go in an environment after getting sick or knowing someone who got in sick and they're asking for basic precautions, right? We also sympathize with some parents who said, look, I, I, I cannot have 
uh, my children in, in at home, you know, for, for different reasons. So, and then we all pitch against each other, right? So Mayor Lightfoot effectively uh, politicizes the problem, weaponizes this situation that is very real for many parents, for many people in the community. And we do listen to our parents. We are, we know that, I mean, we saw parents in restaurants. We, I mean, uh, parents who have the kids in restaurants, parents who had to accommodate. We know the difficulties of our communities. We have people, we got right now have families who got in sick at the school that now have both parents sick and children at home. And, you know, in our community, we don't have paid sick leave. Sick leave. We don't have benefits for that. Simply in our community, if you don't work, you don't eat. And, 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 and because of that, we've been proactively asking the mayor to have a plan. <laughs> That's the basic thing that I think that you were saying, that, that like the governor was saying, uh, many members of the council, many parents, teachers, the teachers union was saying proactively. And they even had to go as far as presenting their own plans and look, can we do at least that? And by all means, the, 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 the plan that the Chicago Teachers Union presented is the very minimum to have some sort of testing, some sort of monitoring, masks, right? That even became a problem to the point that Mayor Lightfoot was threatening in the bargaining table. When she goes in, in, in the public and said, oh, you know, we had a great conversation, productive conversation, we got to talk to the teachers who were in those, in those tables, see how, how proactive were those conversations, uh, or rather they were, they were coming, and, and Mayor Lightfoot has said that to, to even referring to the CEO. He's the boss. I am the boss. We do what we said. But yet when it comes to the results, she has, you know, she blames others for her own actions. So I think that we got to look at what happened. And, and it's clear that Mayor Lightfoot failed. Not only um, the parents failed, the teachers failed every single member of the city of Chicago. But this is not unique. The problem with that is her response and Dr. Awadi's response has been inadequate. We still are waiting. We put a plan forward back in March of 2021, asking Mayor, Mayor Lightfoot to bring vaccination directly to the schools, what LA and DC are doing successfully. Vaccination rate in those districts, 91%, 92%. Vaccination rates, fully vaccinated, still three out of four kids in CPS are not vaccinated. Half of black residents are not vaccinated. The hospitalization rates and, and the people who are dying are poor people, essential workers that only a few uh, only a few months ago, uh, Mayor Lightfoot were praising. But today, they're not even able to provide basic safety protocols for the kids of the essential workers, for the people who are devastated by this pandemic. So her plan was a failure. And I, w- I will agree with um, um, uh, Stacey Davis-Gates, the vice president of CTU. Mayor Lightfoot is not fit to be in office. If she cannot have a basic collaboration with the mayor, with the governor's office, something that our office does very regularly. In fact, more regularly than we should because from the mayor's office, we rarely get a response. We got more funding for, you know, from the state in terms of violence prevention and other things than from the, than the city. So when it comes to collaboration, when it comes to building in the middle of a pandemic, we already know the challenges with a grossly unequal community, right? We have the disparities in the city make it very difficult to address the pandemic. But when we have a mayor who doesn't collaborate with her own colleagues, with other um, uh, government agencies, we have a, 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 an almost impossible task. Look at the results in terms of safety, you know, the devastating 800 murders, this just, this just over 800 murders this year. Look at what happens with CPS, constant chaos. This is all the mayor doing, and she has to own her responsibility. 
All right. Uh, so I guess you do agree with you, Byron. That was a great ref. I'm going to bring uh, Lorene in on this. Lorene Targo is one of my favorite scientists in the world. She works for the EPA. If she says anything, I always do this, Lorene. You always got to protect you. If she says her beliefs are her beliefs, EPA. So don't punish her. She's protected <laughs> by a union. She's got First Amendment right. No cancel culture. Okay? <laughs> we don't believe in cancel culture on the Ben Jarofsky show. I always do this when Lorene comes on uh, because uh, she may say something that would offend the powers that be. Uh, so, Lorene, you were saying something very powerful to me before we went on the air today when you and I were uh, conversing. We were talking about the change message of COVID regarding COVID that you see that's bigger than Chicago. So, Byron was pointing out some of the peculiarities of Chicago's system where they mayors come and go and they just actively don't care about poor black people. Uh, it's pretty obvious. Uh, you were talking about larger messaging about COVID and it struck home with me because I've heard it from so many of my friends of the uh, more upscale Demi persuasion. Uh, and what they tell me, Lorene, is that COVID is like the flu, which is what uh, Allison Arwadi said, the health commissioner. Uh, and it's not even a bad, this current strand is not a bad, a strain is not a bad version of the flu. Uh, they've been vaccinated, so, they, uh, so they're okay. They have a big house that could be uh, sequestered, if you will, from the rest of the people in their family. So what's the big deal? Uh, well, and I think that message is getting out more and more by pundits, Dems, uh, and even establishment doctors. Take it away, uh, Laureen. Yeah, so um, I base all my science on my master's in public health from UIC and not at all on whatever day job I might have. And um, I am union, so I'm here only as union and my graduate degree. <laughs> and um, yeah, I that's definitely been the case. I mean, it seems as though Democrats were just itching for Trump to get out of office so that they could normalize Trump. And that's what we see today. I mean, the COVID rates are off the charts. And what did we see from mainstream news? Oh, Omicron is mild. We don't know that Omicron is mild. Um, we know, how, how would they know that? There's, you know, all, all that message did was help normalize everyone getting exposed to it. We had 1.4 million people infected with COVID today in one day in the United States when we have a total testing shortage. So what's the real number? What are what are the testing numbers in prisons and jails? Um, you know, we're going to be dealing with the long-term effects of long COVID, the, uh, the deaths, the disabilities that come out of all of this for generations. And the people who are making the decisions now, the people like Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, will be dead. And then my generation and the generation after will be the ones cleaning up the mess of them having, you know, harmed millions of people. Um, in this pandemic. And so, yeah, there was definitely, you know, there's definitely high level coordination basically to normalize uh, a corporate response to this pandemic, um, doing exactly what Trump was saying, giving it, making it a state's responsibility. Biden still hasn't come and taken any leadership. We have, I mean, where does it stop? How, how do we have to have a Biden uh, mutation? Do we have to have a light foot mutation? I mean, you know, diseases can get a lot worse. And I don't, it's more sort of on us now about what we're going to do about this. Because when people show you who they are, believe them. They've showed us that they're totally fine with genocide of millions of people um, catching this disease that has unknown long term effects. 
and, you know, is now likely to cause a skyrocketing rate of childhood diabetes in children um, with, you know, the price of um, insulin still inhumanely high in this country. So, you know, what what are we the people going to do about it? Because it's clear, clear that no one's going to come save us. And, and Ben, maybe if we can add a, a round in terms because of the, te- you know, we can connect it to what's going on with the schools, right, the teachers, right? Because now, as you know, right, teachers were forced, right, to go back to the classroom. I mean, in the most classic authoritarian regime, right, say, you go to back, you like it or not, even if it's not safe. Uh, I think the teachers find themselves in a very difficult situation, right, with um, a labor agreement that does not allow for these kind of actions. They're trying to protect the, not only themselves, but trying to protect the students and families they serve uh, without many support. I mean, we don't hear, uh, elect. in fact, Biden was in the press attacking the union himself, right, because they know that this sets a precedent for other unions, for other teachers to do that and protect themselves. We see in California just a, a few days ago, there were massive mobilization of teachers because they understand, and, and other Another, um, another uh, labor. I think that we need to come together between labor groups. Now they're asking for Medicare for all. This was some of the things that we saw in California. We got to demand real solutions for public elected officials, from Biden to all the way down. And I think I hope with the teachers, the rank and file, what we're hearing right now is a lot of concern because they know that the classrooms are not safe. The classrooms are filthy. They know that vaccination has not been where we, we know that the testing was ineffective. We know that the tracing is not even existent. In fact, our, our Dr. Wadi yesterday in a hearing admitted that basically they don't even know if they should be doing tracing anymore or not, which is completely against some of their own CDC norms. So when we see that they are, they bend the rules according to what's convenient to them, it's not really a matter of public health anymore. And I think it's really up to us now. I, I And I think, Ben, you probably, you know, you know better than many of us, you know, that when Karen Lewis was there, there was a very strong connection, right, um, that really uh, helped get, kind of got CTU and core and help us more larger than just, you know, uh, what the teachers, but also connecting with communities. I tell you that uh, because of Karen Lewis, we're able to stop a metal shredder here in Pilsen. That no, a lot of people don't know, but r- when she became a candidate for mayor, she was instrumental to help us. Otherwise, we have a general iron right here in our community. Yeah. So we know that it is important that we connect. I think the teachers are in a very difficult position. They get attacks, national attacks, right, from the president to right-wing extremists and so forth. So we need to figure out how do we reconvene the grassroots education movement again with community leaders, community groups, parents, teachers. But it's extremely difficult when you have, you know, own government, you know, uh, basically kidnapped but all these interest groups with the big capital right fighting you back in basic public safety measures that should be given by government but now we have to beg so what Lorraine is saying is true is up to us parents teachers and and public health experts to fight it together to have a common sense response and a responsible a response to this pandemic it is really outrageous to see elected officials not following the science not so not following the guidelines but basically fall into the political discourse, polarizing, weaponizing, and making this this even more challenging than what it already is. I think, um, and what what you had mentioned before, um, you know, the you kind of see this happening after the Virginia gubernatorial election, where the Republicans won. And what what happens in the Democratic Party when you fail? You fail upwards. So all the people who caused that big failure in Virginia, where they had a Carlisle group guy running against a Carlisle group guy. and then they doubled down and said, hey, it's it's socialism or barbarism. Democrats can only win with the barbarism that the Republicans are winning with. And so now we have two parties that are pro-barbarism. And, you know, the, pe- the grassroots are the ones who have to fight for, you know, hu- people before profit. 
Uh, yeah, I was just, man, Lorene read my mind. Uh, what a clutter it must be up there too. When you're, uh, reading my mind, Lorene. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, there's, there's like all sorts of basketball stuff in there. She's got to deal with, cause that's what's usually in my mind. But, um, <laughs> What you said was what I was literally going to say, Lorene. Uh, I was going to talk about, uh, Byron talked about the political discourse. And I, I saw this coming. I swear, Lorene uh, and Byron, I saw this coming when Glenn Youngkin, the Republican uh, gubernatorial candidate, defeated Terry McAuliffe in Virginia mm-hmm. on the issue of parental, one of the issues, I should say, parental rights. Mm-hmm parental rights and parental rights in Virginia was linked to critical race theory, which has not presented itself yet in the city of Chicago. Uh, but it was also linked in other parts of the country and to a certain degree in Virginia on things like schools don't have the right to um, dictate to kids whether they have to be tested or vaccinated and you can't have mandates uh, that force people to uh, be tested or uh, be vaccinated or even in some cases wear masks. And I said, you know what? This is this is where the Dems are going to go because they're going to read the tea leaves of the Virginia race. And you're right. They're going to go. We got to go right further mm-hmm. right. And I listened to the rhetoric of Lori Lightfoot in this uh, showdown with the teachers union. And what you got the health commissioner acting like a precinct captain for the mayor (laughs) saying it's only the flu, which is straight out of MAGA. And then Lori going, I will not allow testing because uh, it's morally repugnant. Lorene, I think of all the morally repugnant stuff in the city of Chicago. I would like my public officials to denounce, starting with spending billions of dollars in upscale communities while other communities starve. And this is what you're. So you see, morally you, repugnant. We've moved 100 murders last year that she failed to prevent. Yeah, that's pretty morally repugnant, too. So do you think, like, is this. Is this the future of the Democratic Party? I'll ask both of you this, that we're now going to become more relativists about COVID, more like, eh, you want to you wanna get a test? Get a test. No need to get a test. You want to get, are we going to get to the point of masks? You know, it's really up to you. You want to wear a mask? Wear a mask. Are we heading down? Is this just the first step toward completely capitulating to the Republican viewpoint on the COVID? We'll start with you, Laureen. Well, I, I mean, that's kind of, we all have what's it going to take to break in society. Um, you know, like when are, cause I mean, your CC held back their recommendation from 10 days of isolation to five days of isolation. People are saying, Oh, well, that means that the ruling class can't tolerate a day general strike. Um, the teachers, the nurses, the essential workers, the grocery workers, the food producers, you know, the, those workers who keep this country running, pull back their labor, you know, at what, what point, or everybody's at the breaking point, but what's it going to take for a mass mobilization of workers to simply deny the labor? I mean, you already, you got like these hospitals at the breaking point, you got all these kids there. I mean, the, so anecdotally, the two people I talk to, they, they want to stay for the kids, but they can't take the institution beating up them anymore. And so, you know, 
it's hard to hard to predict what will be, you know, the point at which we all the the majority of the people, you know, this is this is a battle between the powerful and the powerless. This is not a right versus left thing. Um, the, the the political theater that beat would like to portray it as such, but my belief is that this is powerless versus powerful and you know powerless need to realize that actually they actually own all the power and then how are they going to take it back all right uh we'll uh uh localize this conversation a bit uh before we move on to other topics uh byron what's your sense of the city of chicago's uh sentiment uh i see articles in the newspaper which uh you know, parents say, I can't take another minute. Sometimes, uh, written by Rebecca Sive, urging Stacey Davis Gates and Lori Lightfoot to make nice uh, and putting them on the same, uh, equalizing their wrong in all this. Uh, and so I've sensed that, like, uh, from the mainstream media, which I mostly read, that's I absorb mainstream media all the time, uh, that there's uh, a hostility to the left. So what's your sense of how people in Chicago are viewing this? Do you think the mainstream media is accurately portraying that, or do you think uh, they're distorting it? Go ahead. Well, as, as, as usual, right, in the corporate media serves the, the owner of the, of the printer, they don't serve the, the public, right? So, uh, and I think that's what we see more and more, um, you know, these discourse that only serves uh, big interests downtown, those lawyers who are their, uh, their, uh, Employees back to work, no matter what, things at the expense of their wealth and, and family stuff. Uh, we continue to see this narrative that uh, basically pitches the pitches the, the 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 mayor again again the state personalizes the problem. This is a matter of personalities, but it's much bigger than that. We we have a mayor that does not believe in public education. Let's be honest, she does not believe in public education. She's not invested in education. That's what I tell you. Uh, we look at the COVID-19 money. I should all be looking into how was it spent, right? We would also look into uh, how what's happening with after-school programming, what's happening with our schools districts, right? It's clear that Mayor Lightfoot does not believe in public education. Uh, she is a big... Um, uh, uh, she's just big into uh, the privatization schemes. You see that we privatize testing. Look at the results on the on the shield testing that we have in this. I mean, it's clear there's no oversight, right, in the in the city of Chicago. So why is the media not talking about that? The use of public funding. Why we're not talking about the the investment, right? That it should be the four billion dollars, four billion, two billion for the city, two billion for CPS. Where does money has gone for? We should not have any shortages, you know, in terms of people. But the fact that half of black residents in Chicago have not been vaccinated is a shame because we know that every research on vaccination shows that vaccination has to be happening in proximity to the communities, in the schools, in park districts, in local clinics. That didn't happen. Is If you check the website where the, the, the vaccination sites we have, we have four schools, four, and three large sites. Citywide, of course, we get, we see the results of vaccination. So when we look at that, we got to look into beyond that. We got to examine what the mayor has done, right? So politicizing this, you know, and it's you know, of course, ways to break unions and to blame the union, uh, break uh, blame the teachers for something that 
Mayor Lightfoot is fully responsible. She actually wants mayoral control. She's insisted on having mayoral control. She's fought for mayoral control against Aldemani prerogative, for fully control of the schools. After she campaigned for the elected representative school board, then she later opposed it, right? So we know where the mayor has done. So I think that the the the, the teachers union is doing the best in, in a very complex environment, right? I, I really uh, commend them for uh, honoring the voice of the teachers, teachers who are just trying to make ends meet. The fact that, you know, imagine the way the teachers were exhausted, the way the teachers thought under these conditions for the last two years. And this is the way that the mayor of the city and the Chicago Police uh, Public Schools treat teachers after the, the, the devastation, the complications. You talk about situations that are beyond uh, you know, social emotional learning and so forth. So I think that this is an opportunity, uh, and I think, of course, the corporate media has failed to do that, to hold the mayor accountable, to scrutinize the mayor for her actions. And, and yes, let's scrutinize what all of us have done, accountability for everybody. But I think the mayor has been protected by the corporate media. There has not been full accountability. There has to be a lot more investigations in terms of, I mean, Mayor Lightfoot uh, considers herself a very ethical person. But I tell you that when we see Hilco report, the Hilco report still not being disclosed to the public after the inspector general asked her to do it. Uh, you could talk about Jeanette Young. You talk about the immorality of paying millionaire settlements for police misconduct. We're still not having and executed the Empowers Community for Public Safety Board so that we have at least some civilian oversight. She's still waiting in all of that. So when we have a mayor who praises herself for being an ethical um, a reformer, <laughs> you know, I think that the media... Quarter, you know, is really is really not doing their job, you know, uh, to really hold her accountable. And this pitching of the mayor versus uh, the union is a way to politicize a problem that has more to do with the mayor and her actions and to scrutinize her uh, inability to govern more than the teacher's response, which is already difficult with such uh, complicated conditions on the ground. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, I'll close this section. That's just saying I do believe uh, that the mayor and many uh, powerful politicians in the city of Chicago, mayor, mayor, uh, many corporate leaders want the Chicago Teachers Union to go back to the days uh, uh, like it was in the daily era. Uh, where they were strictly bargaining on bread and butter issues. And I know there's a percentage of teachers who want that, Byron Sixto Lopez. I know there's a percentage of teachers out there who don't want the union uh, to be identifying with lefty causes or progressive causes, whatever you want to call them. I know that there's a, a certain number of teachers who just say, you know what? I want you to bargain my salary. I want you to bargain my benefits. And that's it. Stay out of these larger fights. Uh, and, you're both absolutely correct. It began with Karen Lewis. Uh, my dear friend passed on uh, and uh, a couple of years ago. And now I watch with dismay as her legacy is being used by powerful forces to try to undercut all the movement that she took the teachers in the direction of. I just, it's wow. It's like what they did to Muhammad Ali. They're doing it to her and, it's staggering. All right. There was an article in today's uh, Sun-Times, an essay written by Rebecca Sive, Byron. This relates to you. Get your thoughts on this. Uh, which talked about the need for Stacey Davis Gates, who is the vice president of the Teachers Union, perhaps uh, their most prominent uh, leader, uh, and Mayor Lori Lightfoot to just get along and bury their differences for the good of the city. 
and it made them treat like equals. Mm. Like, well, you know, Stacy's wrong and the mayor's wrong. And I had a smile because I seems like I know one person that Stacy Davis Gates seems to not be able to get along with. Her name is Mayor Lori Lightfoot. <laughs> I can't I could list I could fill up a show talk and we do fill up we do a show we do a bit in this show which person does mayor Lori lightfoot dislike the most and your name is usually near the top of the list Byron. <laughs> i gotta tell you that she doesn't put loreen on there because she probably doesn't know loreen but your name is near the top for a while it was ray lopez my old pal raylo from the 15th ward but i think you've eclipsed raylo you're well beyond ray she can't stand you that was so obvious in that text message or email exchange she had with uh, Nick Spazzato where they made fun of you. They made fun of your name. Uh, so talk a little bit about that. Do you mm-hmm. think it's a, a false equivalency uh, to say that Stacey Davis Gates and Mayor Lori Lightford are in the same plane when it comes to get along with people? Take it away, Byron. Well, certainly I think is a fabrication, you know, uh, to put a Stacy Davis or personalize this, this issue as a Stacy and and May and Lifewood all of a sudden if they get you know if they get along that all of a sudden our problems will go away it's just it's fictitious right but uh, I think that it, it speaks of, of volumes you know about unfortunately the narrative that we have right and 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 um, uh, and the poor political analysis that unfortunately uh, I think the city gets to read. I think that we need and we ought to be doing better than that, right? And to have a deep analysis. And let me tell you, because I I, I think that when you, when you look at the mayor's actions, you know, and how she herself uh, is collaborating with others. So not only Stacey, but even with the own governor of the state, right? With Governor Prisker, right? When Governor Prisker offers 300,000 tests, right? That we need them, right? Right before the search, right? So why is the mayor Lightfoot not takes on that. We still don't know. I mean, this even after yesterday, I asked directly the question, why would not do that? In fact, now we did, I think as of yesterday, I think they now accepted the help. So is it to create chaos within CPS? Is it to create their own uh, chaos to show that they are uh, self-sufficient? But in a city, you know, in the middle of a pandemic with all the challenges that we face, I think that we need to have leaders who at the very least, as elected officials, the very basic thing is is to discuss matters. We can have disagreements. That's part of politics. But when it comes to her actions, I tell you, for me, it's very it's abundantly clear that we are almost dealing with Ken Griffin himself, right? And and that's her call, right? That is clear that there are um, direct attacks, right? Like you mentioned on the Chicago Teacher Union. In fact, that has been my conversation. We have to be extremely careful with. Um, with that kind, with that, with those kind of politics, there are no differences in good faith. There, these are fundamental ideological problems. Like you said, there are people who want this, you know, the teachers union to go back to the times where you know there was no, there was no advocacy for the rank and file. Now you have a union who is advocating for the rank and file with all the challenges and all the issues and differences that we may have. But like you said, there's a legacy of fighting the grassroots move, education movement fought to make sure that we have teachers and parents talking and democratically finding a way forward. That's not the way Mayor Lightfoot operates. And if you look at the, I mean, if someone looks at the FOIAs, in my text to her, we're about public safety, working together. Let's figure out, let's, let's proactively find solutions to the problems that we have. 
right? Her response, I mean, one time I think she threatened me uh, to say, well, you don't like what you see, you know, then stop calling, right? Like she's, call, like she's talking to, to her, uh, to her uh, neighbor or something, right? She is the mayor of the city of Chicago. That is the person that is responsible for that. You cannot cut communications to the governor. You cannot commun- cut communications to the teachers union. You cannot cut communications with, like, I don't know, a good amount of city council members that, I mean, in my experience, they just, I don't even know when the last time that I talked to her, right? Because that's how she governs. But I tell you, this is beyond that. It's not her personality. This is an, this is basically the the most farthest right individuals in the city of Chicago who now are governing. This is Ken Griffin and those circles who are governing and imposing their views without dialogue. So when she called me, and I, I mean, that's quoting her, she called me a jackass. I mean, I never referred to her in any uh, derogatory terms, but I've been very clear with her about my position on her last budget. And I think it was clear now and it's more abundantly clear that it was wrong for her to give even more money to the police department to pay the banks, you know, to pay Chase Bank, the same bank that was discriminating black homeowners. I mean, when you add insult to injury to our communities, you know, black communities who are being devastated, uh, you know, the, the displacement of uh, almost 290,000 re- black residents of the city, right? When we talk about the violence, when you talk about the state of our schools, Time after time, Meryl Lightfoot shows us her true colors. And I think, again, at some point, I think we got to say, it. who do we call? Do we call Meryl Lightfoot or do we call her friend Ken Griffin? Because at some point, you know, we got to be real here. The, the big interest in the city of Chicago, are the was governing, as you said, now masks are optional. She sounded like in the last press conference as, anti, as an anti-vaxxer almost, right? So because she was trying to please that base. And I think that's what also concerns me that there's now the lines between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have become so blurry, right? And you have these disputes uh, when you have billionaires fighting each other, when you have these interests fighting each other, and these elected officials have forgotten who they serve. The majority of Chicagoans who need an actual mayor who brings solutions to care, to listen, and to work with others to find solutions. In that I don't think that we can blame it, Stacey Davis-Gates. I think they've done the due diligence above and beyond, even presenting our own plan. And it's a shame the way they've been treated. And I think that Mayor Lightfoot owes an apology to every teacher in the city of Chicago. All right. Uh, Laureen, you want to weigh in on this uh, topic before I move on to something else? Um, yeah, that op-ed by Rebecca um, in the Sun-Times is terrible. I mean... It's all political theater. She knows Lightfoot is a puppet of Ken Griffin. So stop pretending like Lightfoot's the one, you know, if Ken Griffin called and said jump, she'd say how high. So take it to the boss. Don't pretend like Lori Lightfoot is the one who's leading this here. She's just ingratiating to the billionaire oligarchy for her next cookie. She wants to be the ambassador to Japan after ROM or some shit, something. You're allowed to swear on the podcast. Uh, you're in good company with many people who have uh, dropped various bombs <laughs> on this show, uh, including Cook County State's attorney, Kim Fox, uh, said oh. the same same word that you just said, Lorene, and only she put the, the word bull in front of it. Uh, so, uh, all right, uh, let's move on and let's talk about uh, crime issues. Uh, Lorreen and I had a brief conversation about this uh, before uh, I came on the air, uh, Byron, and love to get both of your thoughts. Uh, there was an article on the front page of the Tribune. I think it was yesterday. I've lost track of time that I alerted Lorene to about crime in Chinatown. 
uh, I believe it's your still your ward. The uh, city has not re uh, rearranged the wards yet, so it's still your ward. Uh, and the issue uh, was um, that crime is rampant. People are afraid. Uh, they they're seeking some sorts of measures from the city. They're uh, the powers that be in the city, and they're not getting them. I'll start with uh, you, Byron, and go to Lorene. Uh, your thoughts, Byron, about the crime situation and how it should be addressed. Let's keep it specific to Chinatown. Chinatown. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and we're actually going to go back even to a previous question, you know, in, in those infamous texts with the mayor, right? The first, uh, some of the first texts, you know, talk about the violence. You know, one of the, in 2019, when I was, you know, first starting, first elected, you know, we have two murders in Chinatown, you know, uh, and uh, it was devastating for the community, uh, a relatively quiet, very peaceful community. Um, and then, of course, the pandemic hit, right? In fact, when the mayor chooses to collaborate, you know, we're able to get actually a public safety liaison, right? Mr. Bart Moy was elected to discuss and strategize with us. And to a certain level was very helpful, right? To discuss violence prevention strategies, collaboration with other neighborhoods and so forth. Then the pandemic hit. And, and I think that what we have forgotten, right, is that, you know, all our communities are intertwined. Well, we cannot pretend that what happens in Englewood doesn't concern Chinatown or doesn't concern um, Lakeview. I think all the communities are intertwined and connected. And I think that we have had conversations with the Chinatown community around that, right? I think that the community, uh, and I think when we lost, uh, you know, I mean, again, these are friends of ours, right? These are people who come to, this is, I think, what Merrill Lightfoot misses, right? When um, Mr. Z uh, got killed, the 71-year-old grandfather um you know he was also you know a, a a good ping pong player very involved in the community these are these are friends of these are people who come and you know in chinatown we have you know um chinese new year we celebrate together there's a sense of community people know each other talk to each other so when we lose a member of our community he it really is a call for action every time but it doesn't have not been met with changes of strategies when people say, okay, things are getting better. But, you know, concerned when things don't change, right? So when we hear from our community is that we want solutions that really addresses the, the core issues, the root causes of the problem, right? We have a, a, a Chinatown, one of the few Chinatowns in the country that is growing because of the dedication, the commitment to the city of Chicago. When the pandemic started, the Chinese community you know, proactively donating masks, donating emergency funds. We collected almost $100,000 uh, in emergency funds. A lot of those funds were collected uh, by Chinatown leaders because they understand that immigrant communities have a hard time. You know, a lot of communities don't even report crime because there's a lot of fear, right? That Trump created that fear is not getting any better. Now we have... Uh, across the country, you know, Asian hatred has been skyrocketing, right? So there has been so much uh, in our community that has been devastating uh, with the pandemic, with Asian hatred. Very, very tough time. I don't recall the last time. I mean, maybe before the pandemic, Mayor Lightfoot came to one of the Chinese New Year celebrations. But it has been little attention and the people can can tell. In fact, uh, Governor Prisker has come. To when we had a, a campaign called We Love Chinatown campaign, because every time there's crime, you know, that affects all of us. You know, it affects the business, residents don't walk around, seniors are terrified, because it adds to the Asian hatred issues that we have, the, the many issues that are challenges that the community faces, and we face it as a community. Governor Prisker accepted, came, dined with us, have 
you know, had a conversation with that, we never saw Mayor Lightfoot, you know, in the multiple attempts. So I think is is a call. And again, there was a call. I mean, but in the article, I think that it comes from out of a march. There were thousands of people who came. Actually, I was the only speaker there because we are unified in our message. People want solutions that really are honest. That are, Because I think one thing about the, the, the Chinese community, people want to have solutions that work. Uh, again, I don't want to discuss on the Tribune coverage of crime because it's a, a separate question. But what I tell you is that we need to focus on solutions that are effective. That's what the community wants and the root causes. In fact, we had a really historic conversation during the Martin Luther King Day. Chinese leaders, leaders on the South Side, leaders in the Latino community to discuss the importance of, the, of, of, of checking on the root causes, right? To discuss poverty, to discuss what's happening in other communities and to look into those communities. In fact, when the, the crime on Mr. Zay happened, the family was not only praying for Mr. Zay, was also praying for the the person who committed the crime and that there are no more crimes in our community, looking for our leaders to act with compassion, with dignity, with respect, but with effectiveness. Mm-hmm. And when they don't see that, of course, they mobilize in big numbers. Again, I don't recall the last time the Chinatown mobilized thousands of people in, in a matter of a few days. That is what I think the media should be covering, that this was an organic response for actions, to look at the root causes, to keep each other safe, to know that we don't live in silos, that we live in a city. And I tell you, my hats to the Chinese community during this whole pandemic for their character, for the dedication, the commitment to the city. The Chinatown in Chicago is a prayer, is a, is a gem. It's one of the few that continues to grow, and we got to do better, not only in Chinatown, but across the city. We got to look at the root causes. I know, and I'm going to end with this, but G2 Brown has something, uh, you know, brother G2 Brown for the now Journey for Justice has a great plan. It's called the Quality of Life for Black and Brown Neighborhoods that really has a detailed plan of what is needed on this pandemic in our schools, in our neighborhoods, and in small businesses and before. That is a plan that we should consider. Our leaders in Chinatown are discussing that. They even formed a Chinatown Safety Foundation, right, to discuss and look at best, you know, best practices and research-based solutions. But when they don't see that from the mayor's office, I think it's a call of action. I think, of course, I'm the representative, and I'm glad that they will have uh, in the future the first Asian majority ward, and we'll continue working with them. Uh, and I think it's being disappointing the response of the city to crime in general, but also to forgotten to communities like Chinatown who are engines of our community. All right, I'll read your thoughts on this. Um, we know. You know, Lightfoot's strategy has always been about, you know, how she looks in the media. That's why she has her whole campaign around getting guns off the streets. But all they're doing is getting low-hanging guns that really aren't the highest-risk guns that are going to be having a trigger pulled, which is why we've seen her strategy fail year after year. I mean, 700-plus deaths wasn't enough in 2020. She had to top it in 2021, and there's no change in strategy for 2022. Um on the alternative, we know where the most high-risk crimes are going to happen. We know the people who are most, you know, hanging onto the crack by a thread. And before they pull the trigger tomorrow, we could go there today and say, do an intervention so that tomorrow they don't pull the trigger. And these things are possible. We could drastically, statistically, significantly reduce crime immediately. But they don't. And we need to sort of we need to stop pretending like this problem is insurmountable. It's only it's only an illusion that is insurmountable because the powers that be don't want to solve it. 
crime is profitable for the ruling class. It's a profitable tool to terrorize communities to to to, you know, um, you know, we talked about Cabrini Green, how they drove up the crime in that neighborhood because they wanted to drive the to justify getting rid of all that housing. And there's other communities where public housing is prevalent, where, you know, there isn't a lot of like when Byron first became alderman, um, you know, the, the Abla Homes area, the public, the security at CHA had never coordinated with the police department there. Never. Byron had to lead on making sure that those two forces were coordinating with each other and we saw crime drop. But, I mean, why did that have to come around in 2020? Why couldn't that happen 20 years ago? Um, And there's so much low-hanging fruit like that all over the city that we're just not taking action on because of corruption, because of, you know, because the people don't really have the power. And so we need to, one, believe that there is a solution and two, go out and get it because the people who are there are there to perpetuate the status quo. All right. Uh, You mentioned uh, Chinatown being uh, part of a larger majority uh, Asian-American ward. Let's talk about uh, the remapping of Chicago. Uh, I don't know who wants to start first. Uh, You both are political junkies and you know the area really well. Uh, and Lorene Targos was pivotal in Byron's campaign, sort of a, the strategist behind the scenes, uh, helping him. Uh, I, st- I still, Byron, can't believe he won that election. I, uh, <laughs> I think I, sometimes I just go, man, this guy's even, le- he's lefty like me. No, you're lefty like me. And I'm like, how the hell did this guy get elected in the city of Chicago? Uh, <laughs> I, I just sometimes just think about that, Byron, when I hear you, when I read your quotes in the paper. Uh, so I have to be like, if I got elected to an office, so, all right. The political oh no, future. you might tell the truth, Ben. That's a big problem. <laughs> yeah. No, you tell the truth. You're not going to last long in the city of Chicago. You get fired. Um, all right. Uh, Chinatown, it's its own force. It's its own political force. Uh, a, a majority Asian ward would radically change with the 25th ward, which is your ward looks like. Uh, so I have to wonder about the political future, uh, Byron, your political future with this remapping and the political future of the community, Lorene, that you know and love so much. Chinatown, I don't know. I don't care who goes for I'll just go with Lorene. Uh, we'll make you go first this time. Um, so in, an, in, in your ideal world, uh, what would the map look like? Uh, in your in this neck of the woods where the 25th Ward is? Um, well, if we really wanted to piss off Lightfoot, let's keep 78 <laughs> and 25th Ward um, and fight to keep a casino out of it because a casino is only there to come predate on the Chinese population just to the south of it. Um, and, uh, you know, Chinatown should have an Asian majority ward. Why not? They have the numbers, you know, why deny it? to them um and then i guess byron would you know have to go and you know find a latina wife to get him, uh, get him a majority latino word oh my God. remember what they said uh, uh it's been a while oh, i remember the the campaign folks who were sending emails to journalists saying oh really suspicious that he marries a chinese woman <laughs> At the same time that he was trying to win in Chinatown. Hmm. I know. I remember that in some journals. There may be something to this. Uh, Look into it more. <laughs> keep looking. Yeah, keep digging. Uh, Byron, what percentage of the vote did you get from Chinatown's precincts? Do you remember? Yeah, I think it was over 70%. So I think like, and, that's, and to your 
first in the question, second round. In the second round. Said, well, so, how much was it in the second round? Six, 60 or 70. 70 almost 70%. And I think it was in, in both communities, in Pilsen and Chinatown. So, you know, basically Pilsen and Chinatown carry the vote, right? And that, I think- But it your, wasn't because of me. My mom was out there, you know, <laughs> hardcore. And a lot of old, old uh, folks were coming up to me and they're like, we're not voting for him because of you. We're voting for him because of his mother-in-law. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, 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 t- I tell you a funny, a funny anecdote of, of that campaign, uh, you, you know, just very quickly, but I think it's worth it because people need to see the needs and greets in the campaign. So, you know how in the campaign, you know, you got volunteers making phone calls, right? And, you know, volunteers going to make, you know, 100 calls, you know, in, in a few hours or so far. So we didn't see Lorraine's mom for probably half half the day. She was making phone calls. And she comes back with, like, some, like, super high numbers. I don't know the specifics, but something around, like, 700 calls. And then she, you know, and, you know, it's hard to make contacts and make pluses, right? And then she comes back with, like, something, like, triple the amount of what anybody else will got that day, you know, uh, I don't know, 70 people to say yes, you know, and she will be, you know, we got from like yes to maybes to, you know, different. And some people say well, likely or leaning and she was committed and yes, and nobody will believe her, right? No, come on, the people that, you know, maybe yes, you know, and she like, they are a hundred percent with us. And sure enough, she was right and nobody believed her. So so she, the conversations that were happening with people, the things that I'm trying to say were important, right? Listening to them. Uh, discuss, I mean, communities like ours are never listened to. I mean, Pilsen, Chinatown, never takes the time to really hear the concerns. And so when people get mobilized in thousands of people, people that talk to each other, care about each other. So the only reason why our campaign was possible is because communities that ours were giving a voice. We all knew the corruption that was happening. It was real. And nobody talked about it. Think people think of it as a, you know, for us to call Solis corrupt. Some other people, you know, the Puntins were, oh, that's, you know, the, the conspiracy theories, right? They, <laughs> it was it was selling zoning um, zoning decisions by Viagra, you know, and those are the, the radicals, they're exaggerating, right? And yeah. when it became public, you know, for a community, they're like, yes, we knew, and I'm glad he got caught. So, and I think in, our, in, our, in, our, in, in a perfect world, I think the Asian community needs to have their own representative, right? We know that Chinatown and Bridgeport belong together. I actually campaigned for it, I committed to it, and I will deliver. I know my colleague wasn't very happy, an 11th award, but I know that that's important, right? In, in terms of representation, especially in the climate that we have with Asian hatred and all that, we committed from day one. In fact, we have been helping uh, the community whip the votes. So, and you know, finding consensus right now in city council is not easy, but if there's one thing we agree on is that to have an Asian majority award, and that goes to the credit of the Asian community, that goes to, uh, to something's long overdue, but to show that when we organize, we can win. When we hear, we can strategize. In fact, they're part of the 25th Ward Independent uh, Remap Coalition, and we done what every elected official should be doing, public meetings, discussing, you know, what makes sense, what communities want to be compact, and uh, as part of that, you know, as we support the Chinatown Community Award, they have been supporting us to have Pilsen as a compact. Remember, my predecessor caught Pilsen, you know, took the east part out, a part of the east, at least two or three precincts to get rid of her, his opponent, right? The previous yeah. opponent, uh, Mor- uh, Morphine. Yeah. And now we're going to bring it back. So having their support shows what solidarity looks like. So they're helping us keep our community compact. In fact, members of other communities are now 
uh, coming, testifying, coming to meetings. That's what democracy should look like. So I would urge other colleagues to have more public meetings, to discuss with their communities. That's how we go and get better maps. You know, this infighting behind door deals don't, doesn't serve anyone, but especially interest groups. So to Doreen's point, I do think that we got to keep an eye on that 78. Because there was oh, again, 78. Oh, my God. You know, Just so people know, uh, Lorene mentioned 78. 78 is a huge TIF deal uh, that's currently in the 25th Ward. Lord knows when the, the reconfiguration happens where it is. It's uh, roughly Roosevelt Road and Clark Street. There's a huge track of undeveloped land uh, that's on either side of the Chicago River. Uh, developers have been eyeing that forever. And, of course, they want the city to kick in some TIF money uh, to sweeten the deal so that uh, the city is essentially uh, socializing and guaranteeing the profits uh and uh in that period of time where uh, Byron lopez had been elected the alderman but not been sworn in and his predecessor danny solis who, who knows where he had gone witness protection i have no idea where he went after he got caught in the scandal and, and just disappeared that's when the city council at the last meeting in rob emanuel they passed the 78 they passed. They've they've targeted 1.1 billion, I think. Yeah, 1.3 uh, billion. Yep. 1.3. Oh, it's 1.3. Okay. Uh, over a billion dollars to uh, underwrite this the uh, development there. It could be a casino, as Lorreen uh, said. It's one of the sites that's being considered. We don't know where the casino will go. Uh, and so Byron, I just always laugh at it because they always say that alderman prerogatives would dominate Chicago. <laughs> they alderman elect was like protesting in the streets of Chicago against <laughs> it. They still passed it. And, you know, apologists for the the city, the way it goes. Well, Ben, he wasn't uh, the alderman. He was the alderman-elect. So alderman prerogative only happens when you're like officially sworn in. I said, man, you people will justify anything in the city of Chicago. You're so brainwashed. But, uh, Funny anecdote to that point. You know, when I was, you know, I went to testify against it, right? Life would remember at the time uh, was against the TIF funding as well. And my predecessor was missing in action. So funny story, when I went to testify, I was alderman-elect in the, um, you know, in the general area giving public comment. And I wanted to stop at least one provision was was giving uh, some funding for um, some extra funding to us. And as I was testifying against it, and one of my colleagues, you know, told me, well, what don't you talk to? It was in the Buildings Commission. Why don't you talk to? Maybe just talk to them and they, they'll stop it then, right? Of course, it was temporary because then ultimately life would win and, and, and approve it all, you know. But to show that they conveniently use the rules when it's convenient and not. Absolutely. But to your point, I think hopefully we have democracy because that $1.3 billion was given. And there was a previous agreement. And again, we're already talking to attorneys to discuss if there's a change in, in plans, there has to be public accountability and scrutiny on this deal. So again, to Mayor Lightfoot's, uh, you know, and I always find it so hypocritical when she tries to take the high ground, like we don't forget that she was opposed to it and then she went for it and now she's doing everything she can to take it away from the 25th ward. But we are working with, like again, to your point, community leaders from Chinatown to Pilsen in a 25th ward coalition that I think has done a lot to keep neighborhoods compact. Uh, I think that I feel okay in terms of what we've done, you know, and I think our prospect for re-election have not changed because we have not, we've not have compromised our values and I feel that we have a good chance. And if they take us out doing the right thing, let it be. But we're not gonna act on fear or without integrity just for self gain, that, that we won't do.
All right, I can guarantee you. I'll, I'll, uh, I'm a reformed gambler. You guys should notice. I used to have a gambling <laughs> issues. But I don't gamble. I really don't gamble anymore. I'm a reformed gambler, but I still think as a gambler, I would put money in Vegas right now that that 78 deal will not be in any ward that Byron Sisha Lopez can represent. They, gotta, they, <laughs> they don't want you having any say. Over what goes down there, they got to put some rookie alderman who doesn't know where the bathroom is in charge of that so they can just shove anything down his throat. <laughs> just like they do old boy Hopkins in the second war. <laughs> they took all the, the Lincoln Yard deals, uh, property out of Scotty Waggisback's ward, and they gave it in the second ward, and Hopkins came in and. So that's how Chicago works, Byron Sixer Lopez, and you've been around it long enough to know. You'd probably be putting the money in Vegas on the same bet I would. No way. Oh, they're going yeah. to 78 to you. With Lorene Targos as your wife? Hell no. Uh, <laughs> all right. We're going to close it down with a discussion. Uh, Lorene, you, you uh, uh, good-naturedly apologized uh, for cursing. I have to tell you something. The lawyer that your husband is working cahoots with, uh, Adolfo Mondragon, has got the foulest mouth. El Dragon, he comes on the show. It's it's usually two minutes before the F first F-bomb starts flying. I just got to tell you that. So you have no need to apologize. You should hear El Dragon sometime. Uh, but a uh, big victory for Adolfo. He's a, a dear friend of mine. We go to White Sox games a lot. Uh, this guy, I give him a lot of credit, Byron. Uh, he took the case against Danny Solis, and you will, and you were a willing plaintiff. Uh, he needed a plaintiff who lived in a ward. Danny Solis, the former alderman of the 25th Ward, uh, got in trouble and then uh, wore a wire uh, for the feds and gathered all this evidence on Ed Burke, and now Ed Burke's in trouble. So I've, as I said to you before, Byron, you could argue uh, that Danny Solis has done more than anyone to clean up corruption in the city of Chicago and perhaps should be given an award, uh, corruption cleaner. Uh, anyway, he's in trouble, uh, and uh, it's not quite clear if they're going to prosecute him or what have you, uh, but he wants to use his campaign funds uh, for to pay his criminal defense fees, as Ed Burke is doing, as Michael Joseph Madigan is doing, uh, and Byron Lopez allowed his name to be used to for Adolfo Mondragon to file a suit against this. I told Adolfo same thing. No way you're going to win. No way the judges <laughs> are going to give you two mavericks, you two nobodies that nobody sent a victory against the powers that be. And I can't believe it. Somehow, some court agreed with Adolfo. <laughs> And it's coming before the Supremes. I mean, I think I owe him dinner in Chinatown uh, at my yes. favorite Szechuan restaurant. If you just for making it to the Supremes, uh, the Supreme Court. So a lot of love to Adolfo and you. So talk a little bit about that. Uh, man, you must be the most unpopular man in the Democratic Party with this lawsuit. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, oh you bet. And, and, and you're right. I think all the credit to, to Adolfo, who, you know, early on, um, identified that as a, as a systemic problem, right? He sees Berg doing it, Madigan was doing it, Solis was doing it. So there's no accountability for these individuals who betray the, the public trust that are using campaign uh, contributions unethically. I think that even when we went to, before the first challenge was with a, in the Board of Elections. That was the first challenge, right? Uh, because we see how, uh, or my predecessor was using it, uh, you know, for, for um, even to pay her his... Uh, daughters and so forth but but this was outrageous right now you're using it again you know to 
to protect yourself from, from wrongdoing. I think it shouldn't be allowed, right? I think that is part of why there's no accountability. When we uh, when we allow public elected officials to to do as they please, right? And you're right, I'm probably not the biggest, um, uh, the Democratic Party is not a big fan of, of our administration, but I tell you that that's what we acted independently. We look at with uh, first with the uh, Board of Elections, and it was there in the Board of Elections where we Adolfo and I found when the own you know, Board of Election um, judges that were looking at this case were so split about this, not any one of them said uh, you know, anything that did not have contradictory remarks in, in, in the hearing. They all were twisted. They all said it wasn't ethical. But in the spirit of the law, it was not illegal, right? So Adolfo, which is a maverick by an unethical an attorney, um, said, you know what? I think that we can appeal this decision, right? Because for us was to stop pressing, you know, this process for us was to clean the house, to to help that this this doesn't happen again. But I'm really like the Adolfo is so relentless, right? So he said, well, I think we can appeal to the Supreme Court. And I, my first reaction to you was the same. It's like, well, what are our chances? You know? No and he was probably not, like, probably very little. But on principle, we shall take it. And I said, well, you know what? You got me there, you know, so let's do it, right? And I was as surprised as you are, you know, when I found, you know, uh, that a judge has looked into that. But the, the you know, Supreme Court actually has taken to that. It's going to put Ann Burke in a very tough position, by the way. <laughs> She's going to have to recuse herself. I think she has know? recused herself. She has to recuse herself. Me, yeah. yeah, so... Um, and I think now we have a hearing in the Illinois Supreme Court. And I think this is important because because of Mavericks like Adolfo, right? Because of the, the good people of Chicago, right? We can have better practices. And I think we're going to have uh, on the 19th, actually, or, or hearing uh, in the morning with the, uh, in the Illinois Supreme Court. And I think that we have good chances. I think that the, the, the court is looking at this as it should, right? Uh, with with the legal lens, right? With the best practices lens and not with the lenses from the Democratic Party, right? Or any party for that matter. So I think that we have a good chance. I think we have made a commitment uh, of passing ethics reform. You know, we we come, we inherited a big mess. I tell you, like, I've been at least, this is, I think, probably, I don't know, maybe third of, I've been in three or four lawsuits from my predecessor's times. And I think that we are making progress in addressing a lot of these um, corrupt practices. And I think this was a big one because it's going to send a, a change, right? A, a, a change in our laws uh, that hopefully sends a strong message. We'll have repercussions for Alderman Merck, uh, speak, former Speaker Madigan, and I think we'll hopefully make elected officials think twice before, you know, acting and to think twice. And maybe, just maybe, we have people who think about their constituents before their wallets. Mm. Uh, very good point. Uh, Lorena, I'll give you uh, the final word. Any uh, parting thoughts you want to have on that lawsuit or any of the issues that we discussed? The floor is yours. I think... Um... You know, it's about to be the the Lunar New Year, the year of the tiger. And we got to, you know, stop putting up with this oppression and take our country back, take our city back, because clearly they're fine with us dying. Um, maybe the last word is um, denouncing the eugenics from the CDC with um, the director saying, you know, it's good that only people with comorbidities are dying from COVID. Uh, everybody deserves to survive COVID and not have any long-term uh, ailments as a result of it. 
And um, that's the world we got to fight for because they're trying to normalize COVID to be just something that everyone kind of gets dead or disabled from. And um, that's not something that we need to put up with yeah. other Vietnam has 90 million people and less than 100 people have died of COVID and we can have that too yeah Arwadi didn't answer to Lorraine's point didn't answer the question about long COVID yesterday in the committee she just did not answer it what, what was the specific question do you so remember? we asked her basically just a broad question what do we know about long COVID you know and the the, the effects that we are seeing and what is the data showing she just didn't answer it yeah well, actually, I need a surprise. The uh, there's a I will close. I'll close where we began. This has now become politicized. Uh, and if you're a doctor on the team, the message that you're sending out and uh, Lorene and I talked about this is that we got to learn to live with covid because the Virginia election <laughs> results showed <laughs> that uh, it. People don't view it as a threat. People meaning middle class, upper middle class people don't view it as a threat. So it doesn't matter if the unwashed are dying. Uh, and it's a really sad statement to make about humanity. So I was feeling pretty good uh, with you guys taking on the man, and now I'm feeling down again. But I'm going to pump up <laughs> and give you guys a lot of love. Give it to Ofo. Make sure he eats a good, hearty breakfast, Byron, so he has energy when he goes before that. Uh, the Supreme Court, and uh, we'll see what happens. All right? Yeah. If we win, we go to La Sichuan. We, we, we treat you for that. Let's, uh, let's do that. I'm on. I got that one <laughs> taped. So... Um, <laughs> And if, even if you lose, we'll go anyway. Even we'll, if we lose, uh, that's right. Drink some red wine and to a good uh, good fight, a good valiant effort. All right, Byron Sichel Lopez, it's been way too long. Love having you on the show. Lorene Targos, you know, uh, you're my favorite scientist, or one of my favorite scientists. I got a bunch of them at the EPA. Uh, you, <laughs> thanks for coming on the show, you two. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. All right. And Dennis. And Dennis, yes. Uh, Byron and Lorene, thank you very much. And, of course, I also want to thank the aforementioned man himself, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of all Illinois, without whom the show would be possible. And as Byron and Lorene will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for the marvelous. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of Patty Cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Right now, um...